Well, beloved, we are in the third of five planned sermons in the book of Jonah that's been acknowledged at multiple points in this service already. And I've done more lengthy introductions in the first two sermons of this series. If you've not been here for those, I leave that to you. Those sermons are online and you can avail yourself of that content. Today's introduction will be very brief because low-key, we've got a lot to accomplish today. It's a very full text as we're going to consider Jonah in the belly of the great fish. As we've acknowledged also at points through this series, many of us are familiar with Jonah simply because of that great fish thing. The fact that the prophet was swallowed by this creature and he was in the belly of this creature for three days and three nights. And as we've thought about, again, I leave this to you, this need not be something that trips us up as people who believe in the Holy One, the sovereign Lord of the universe who raised Christ from the dead. Sadly, people have been so consumed with the fish piece of Jonah's account that they have missed the point, perhaps of the entire book, but certainly have missed the point of what's going on in this happening in the first place. Today, we're going to see more of God and his ways with us. And by us, I mean his children, those who are his. We're going to see again that his hand is always on his people. Even in the depths of misery, God is there. And he produces and brings about repentance in his children. And he brings about every good thing. We're going to see and be reminded yet again that it is God and God alone who saves sinners. Salvation belongs to him, not us. And we will see yet again that the entirety of the scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, and that includes the book of Jonah, is a testimony about the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the hope and that's the plan for today. With all of that, by way of a brief introduction, open your Bibles to Jonah. We're going to be looking today at chapter 1 and verse 17 through chapter 2 and verse 10. Just a good reminder for you that the chapter divisions in your Bibles are useful, yet not inspired. Because it's very clear to most everyone that Jonah 1.17 should effectively be the first verse of chapter 2. Because it goes with that content. Just a brief sketch, a brief overview of where we have been, if this is your first Sunday with us in this series. The very beginning of Jonah, the Lord commissions his prophet to go to Nineveh, the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, to preach a message of repentance, a message of impending judgment that would produce repentance in those people. And Jonah, for his part, fled from the presence of the Lord. He at least tried to do that. He tried to do so because in his own words, he knew that God was merciful and gracious. He knew that God was abounding in steadfast love, that he was long-suffering. He knew that God was a God who relents of disaster. And Jonah did not want God to relent when it came to Assyria, when it came to Nineveh. So he fled. We've considered how God relentlessly pursued Jonah. Jonah tried to flee, but everywhere he would go, the Lord is there. God, in his infinite wisdom, brought some mariners, some sailors to faith, and did some good work 
in the life of his prophet. And that work will continue in Jonah's life. At this point in the account, though, Jonah has been thrown overboard and is in the sea. That's where we pick up today. Chapter 1 and verse 17, let's look to it together as I read our passage. This is the word of God. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Amen. We thank God for his word today and every day. The plan today is a simple one. I want to make our way through the passage. I'm going to give us some headers as we do. It breaks down into four headings or so. But we're just going to make our way through the passage. That will be the first part of the message. And then after that, I've got two points that are long. And I'm going to aim to be clear. And I'm going to aim to help you track with me. And we trust the Lord in his grace that we will track together. Because there are epic things to see in this passage. So may he help us. So let's look at the text together. In chapter 1 and verse 17, we read here about the great fish that the Lord appointed to swallow Jonah. This is God's doing. He appointed it. He ordained it. It occurred. And we read that Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Now, you could do a lot of reading about sperm whales and whale sharks and how big their mouths are and how, what their stomachs are like and how sailors have survived, perhaps unconscious but alive, in the bellies of whales for a long time. But as we've said, that is great and the extraordinary providence of God is greater. God, through his providence, is working in unusual means, to say the least, to accomplish his work in the life of his prophet and to give us something of a redemptive historical nature that is far greater than Jonah. Amen? We're going to come back and consider the significance of that. But that's kind of the first header, the great fish. Let's acknowledge that this is what's happened. So now Jonah is in the belly of this creature. And from there, second header, Jonah prays to the Lord. Chapter 2 and verse 1. You see that. The interesting thing here in this account is that Jonah, up to this point, had intentionally abandoned God. And now, 
having sinned, having rebelled, having abandoned God, he finds himself quite literally in the depths, the depths of ruin and misery. All right, pause button. You realize that the fact that Jonah found himself in the depths of misery and ruin on account of his rebellion, you realize that that's God's doing, right? See, we don't think well about this. In general, when it comes to our lives, we think that discomfort is necessarily bad. If it's uncomfortable, it's bad. That's our reasoning. But misery as a result of sin, for God's children, for those on whom the Lord is working, is because of the Lord, not Satan. Misery as a result of turning from God is because of God, not Satan. The fact that we can't forget our sin is because of God, not Satan. You see, Satan would have us comfortable in our sin. So this is where our reasoning breaks down. If it's comfortable, it's good. If it's uncomfortable, it's bad. That does not work in the economy of salvation in a fallen world. God will not allow his children to go on being comfortable in sin. That's a good thing. God crushes us in order to restore us. He will take us to the depths in order to bring us up again. He's doing it in Jonah's life. He does it in our lives. And this is evidence of God's love. He disciplines those he loves. It is evidence that his hand is on us and it is evidence that God, praise be to his name, will not leave us to our own devices. Though Jonah had abandoned the Lord, the Lord had not abandoned him. And from the depths of misery, Jonah will find the mercy of God. Notice the text. Chapter 2 and verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish. That one word, his, is a big deal. It's one thing to say that the Lord is God. It's another thing to say the Lord is my God. In all of this account, this, as we've called it, this disaster show, you know, this dumpster fire that has been Jonah's fleeing from God and Jonah's hardness of heart, a key thing to know and observe is that Jonah is the Lord's and the Lord is Jonah's. The Lord perseveres with those who are his. He is unrelenting in his covenant love. To his children. He is always with his people. Should we try to flee from his presence, it's futile. His hand is always upon us, and he will accomplish his good and holy purposes in our lives through any means necessary, including pain and including the depths of misery. 
We confessed it in our service earlier. But let me read these words again from the 1689 London Baptist Confession, chapter 5, paragraph 5. I'm repeating the reference because it's good enough that you could read it often. The perfectly wise, righteous, and gracious God often allows his own children for a time to experience a variety of temptations and the sinfulness of their own hearts. He does this to chastise them for their former sins or to make them aware of the hidden strength of the corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts so that they may be humbled. He also does this to lead them to a closer and more constant dependence on him to sustain them, to make them more cautious about all future circumstances that may lead to sin, and for other just and holy purposes. So whatever happens to any of his elect happens by his appointment for his glory and for their good. This is how God operates in the lives of his children. And we take great comfort in that. He's doing it in Jonah's life. And one of the great values of Scripture is to look and see human beings who are just like us, with whom the Lord perseveres. And we see his past faithfulness and perseverance with the saints in spite of their struggles and sin. And we say, he will be the same for us. Next, we have Jonah's prayer in verses 2 to 9. We're just going to survey the words here. A lot of good language, a lot of literal and metaphorical language in this prayer. Jonah in verse 2 cries out in distress. He cries out to the Lord who he says answers him. Do not miss that. The Lord is the one who hears and answers prayers even from his rebellious children who are in the depths of it. Jonah says that he cried out of the belly of Sheol. When you hear Sheol, think spiritual realm of the dead. And he says that the Lord heard him from there. Verse 3. The Lord has cast Jonah into the deep, into the sea. The flood surrounds him. The Lord's waves and billows pass over him. In one sense, this is of course very literal language. And it is also metaphorical language. We use this kind of speech to convey significant trial and suffering and hardship. Jonah is experiencing all of that. Suffering, trial, hardship, disaster, ruin. Verse 4. Jonah acknowledges that he has been driven from the Lord's sight. Now when you Read that. Understand, he's been removed from the felt, known, benevolent presence and watch care of the Lord. But he says that he will again look upon the Lord's holy temple. He will look upon the Lord's presence yet again. In spite of the difficulty that he is enduring, here is grace. Beginning in verse 5, there's some literal and metaphorical language again. He's communicating the fact that this is a dire situation. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Then he uses this words about weeds being wrapped around his head at the foot of the mountains. I mean, that's like, think about it, like seaweed wrapped around his head at the foot of the mountains under the ocean, right? We see the mountains above the ocean, but we know 
that in many places, mountains go down to the ocean floor for thousands and thousands of feet. This is the depth of his ruin and despair. In the latter part of verse 6, Jonah again acknowledges that he had functionally descended into the realm of the dead, yet he says the Lord brought up his life from the pit. The Lord restored and delivered him. This is what God does with his children. Verse 7, when Jonah's life was fainting away, he remembered the Lord. He prayed to the Lord. And yet again, do not miss this. His prayer reached the Lord in his holy temple. Not only did it reach the Lord, the Lord heard and the Lord answered. It's hard not to think that he is so much more good and kind than we often think that he is and then we can even ascribe to him. He is merciful and he is gracious. In verse 8, Jonah states that those who have regard for idols, false gods, they forsake their hope of steadfast love. Now that is quite a statement. And it's true. He's saying, those who do not know the Lord, those who reject the Lord, forsake the only hope of knowing steadfast love that anyone has. Because there's only one being in the universe who shows steadfast love. His name is the Lord, the Holy One. Steadfast love, covenant love, faithfulness like that can be found in no other being. So if you don't know him, you don't know steadfast love. Verse 9. Jonah says that with thanksgiving, he will sacrifice to the Lord. He's making vows as is appropriate. Lord, I, I aim, I strive to be faithful to you. I vow to do it. I'm going to offer sacrifices with thanksgiving. And then he exclaims at the end of verse 9, salvation belongs to the Lord. We're going to come back to that. Suffice it in this moment to say, that only God could save Jonah, clearly. And there are all kinds of implications for what that means for a hard-hearted prophet who begrudges the mercy of God toward others. And then finally in verse 10, sort of fourth heading of the text, Jonah is delivered from the fish, from the belly of the great fish. God speaks to the fish that he had appointed in the first place, and then it vomits Jonah out on the land. So he's been brought out of the depths. He has been delivered from the realm of the dead. Just in case you haven't gotten this already, I just want to be redundantly clear. The Lord continues to persevere with one of his wayward children. We've considered where Jonah's heart has been in this whole thing. The thing itself that he endured in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights was very unpleasant. We should see it as the discipline of God upon the sin of Jonah. As a result of the sin of Jonah. The text makes that very clear, so we should rightly infer that. 
But in all of the discipline and all of the pain and all of the misery, the Lord never left Jonah, ever. I want to reiterate that. He never left because we think when we're hurting, God is far away. Not so. We think that if he's disciplining us, he must be upset with us, and so he's at the other end of the house because he doesn't want anything to do with us. Not true. He's with us. He put Jonah in distress in a way that no doubt humbled and sobered the prophet. But he put Jonah in a position where Jonah could do nothing other than cry out to the only one who could do anything for him. And in all of that, through all of that, God brings Jonah to repentance. This is why we talk about the fact that God is the one who effectively repents us. Right? Because the Lord clearly did this. Jonah's heart is hard. And God in his perfect wisdom ordains all of these things to produce repentance in his child. Sometimes we are stubborn enough, hard-hearted enough, self-absorbed enough that it takes something as extreme as being swallowed by a fish to wake us up. We should be thankful that God will do whatever it takes to repent, to keep, and to finally save us. And we're going to see that the Lord's work is far from done in Jonah's life. It's not like there's this epic occasion of repentance and then it's all good from there. I mean, <laughs> far from it. Jonah is going to be back in a very similar place at the beginning of chapter 4. He will have gone to Nineveh. He will have preached in Nineveh. Nineveh will have repented. The Lord will have relented, and Jonah will be angry about the whole thing. God will continue to persevere with his prophet. It's instructive. We'll think more about that in the coming weeks. So, that's the text for today. In the rest of our time, I've got two lengthy points for us. We're going to reflect, we're going to meditate, we're going to apply, we're going to explain. That's the hope. So, point one of two. Salvation belongs to the Lord. We get the heading right from the text. Salvation belongs to the Lord. This is Jonah 2 and verse 9 at the end of it. Before we say anything else, we should acknowledge that this verse, or this portion of this verse, has been cited by theologians throughout the history of the church to talk about God's sovereign grace in salvation. There are a number of things that could be said about this. We'll start with this. So this is kind of sub-point one. Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord, which means he does it and that we can't. So one, he does it, we can't. We are not those who believe that we save ourselves with God's help. We believe that he does it all. Why do we believe that? Because of the witness of the scripture that as sons and daughters of Adam, we inherited Adam's corruption. We inherited his sin. And so the scriptures tell us that we are not morally good. We're not even morally neutral. We are born corrupt. We are born with a nature that is bent toward evil, not good. 
We're told that we are born, we have wills that are free according to the natures we have. The problem is we are by nature children of wrath. And so we can only do what it's in our nature to do. We cannot do anything salvific. We cannot do anything that would be in accord with eternal life. We are actually born in bondage to the corruption of our flesh. We're born in bondage to the cravings of our flesh. We are born in bondage to the spirit of the power of the air. His name is Satan. We follow the course of the world. We do what everybody else is doing. And we are, by nature, children of wrath, not righteousness. So what does all that mean? If we're born spiritually dead and enslaved and corrupt and all of that. It means that we don't open our own caskets, spiritually speaking. It means that if we are going to be in the realm of life, eternal life, where God dwells, God has to be the one to do that for us. He's the only one who can. This is a big deal for us to realize. That God is the one who makes us alive and unites us to Christ out of grace, not out of merit. Received by faith, not through what we do. We are completely passive when it comes to salvation. We receive it from God. He is the actor. Our salvation depends not on anything in us. It depends not on our willing or our working. It depends upon God who has mercy. The fact that salvation, and when we say salvation, I trust you're thoughtful people, you know what we mean by this. We don't just mean justification on the front end, where we're declared righteous in God's sight. We mean justification, we mean sanctification, the process of being made more holy. We mean glorification, final justification, where we will be declared just before the throne of God at the end of time. That's what we mean by salvation. God does it all. It belongs to him. The fact that that's true is really good news for us. Because if salvation did not belong to him and it belonged to us in any measure, the good news would not be so good. Because not only did we need to be brought from death to life, not only did we need that kind of resurrection, but even having been born again, we still battle the corruption of our flesh and are inclined toward all evil. You don't need me to tell you that that's true. Along with original sin, you know, G.K. Chesterton once said that original sin is the only empirically verifiable doctrine in the scripture. I would argue that the sinner saint reality is equally so. That the corruption of the flesh remains. Every saint from all time knows it's true. So our hope, beloved, is what? It's that the one who raised us to life is the one who will sanctify. And the one who will sanctify is the one who will keep and the one who will keep is the one who will finally present us pure and blameless before his throne at the end of history with great joy. As it stands, as it stands, Jesus has become to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. 
He is all of that. He is a complete Savior. Salvation belongs to Him. So that's subpoint one. Subpoint two, in continuing to think about salvation belonging to the Lord. I'm also mindful, if this is one of your first times with us, I apologize for having such a wonky outline with subpoints all over the place. You just do the best you can. We trust God and His mercy. The subpoint two of this longer point is this. In thinking more about the fact that salvation belongs to the Lord, God gives salvation to whom He wills. God gives salvation to whom He wills. Now, Immediately, when we hear language like that, we start to squirm in our seats a little bit, some of us. Because to us, in some regard, that doesn't sound great, that God is the one who gives salvation to whom he wills. But let's just stop for a moment and acknowledge this reality. We are so deluded as to our own goodness that we often, we would never say it out loud, but we think that we are more merciful than the Lord. When in reality, we are merciless with each other, so often. God is far more merciful than we are. So it is a good thing that he shows mercy to whom he wills because he is generous with mercy. Now, the fact that God is the one who gives salvation and shows mercy to whom he will show mercy is a big deal in general, but in the context of Jonah, it's a very big deal. Why? Because we have a prophet here who begrudges the fact that the Lord would be merciful to Nineveh. He hates it. It makes him angry that God would relent from bringing disaster upon such a wicked people who clearly deserve wrath and judgment. If we're honest, we are plagued with that kind of thinking too. We begrudge, at times, the mercy of God to other people and think that we are wholly entitled to it. Needless to say, this is a cancer in how we would interact with one another and how we would think about our brothers and sisters. Anytime that we look upon somebody that we assess that we know in our lives or even when we read the pages of Scripture and we see God being incredibly gracious and kind, generous even, with people who are liars and cheats and drunks and adulterers, with people who are selfish, people who are manipulative, people who are proud, people who are condescending. When we see God being merciful to such as those, our reaction should be gratitude, humility. Why? Because we are all of those things. Bottom line, no one is deserving of salvation. The Lord justifies the ungodly. He saves sinners from the bad to the worst because there are no other kind. We would do well all the time to legitimately see ourselves as the chief of sinners and as debtors, debtors to grace. We would do well all the time to live with our desperate need of Christ and his mercy in our view. A regular and constant prayer of ours. It is no coincidence that the Lord Jesus in the model prayer would teach us to pray that God would have mercy on us for our sins, to forgive us for our sins. That the tax collector in Luke 18 is held up as a model of have mercy on me, a sinner. It's good that we would pray this 
on the regular. Not because we're asking God to be or do something that he isn't already, but because it is a way of constantly reminding ourselves that we need mercy and that God is faithful to give it. If we were to take these things to heart, how might it affect the ways that we think about each other? How might it affect the ways that we interact? It's worthy of our contemplation. Last piece of this big point one. I, I want to go in for a minute. You may be sitting there and thinking, like, bro, we know this. We know this. We know that salvation belongs to the Lord. We're all about sovereign grace, man. Praise God. And we know that we're prone to be self-righteous and all these things and that we should be grateful. I know that you know that. I, in God's grace, know that. But, beloved, we are heaps of inconsistence. As soon as sin enters the equation, if it's somebody else's sin, we are self-righteous. If it's our sin, we're doubting the love of God and the mercy of Christ. This is what we do. We lose sight of the fact so easily that God is the one who is doing the saving all the time. Even after regeneration. We are just as much in need of the grace of God after regeneration as we are before. So operate with that in view that God is the one doing this thing called salvation in my brothers and sisters and in me. And let that inform your posture toward others and let that inform your peace in your heart and your conscience. Now, we are to live in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Amen. We are to live in a way that's commensurate with the gospel. Amen. We are to live in light of the gospel and from it. Amen. And we will never do well enough to stand on our own. Own that. We will never do well enough to stand in our own merit. I don't care how sanctified you may be. So I'm about to read a lengthy quote from John Calvin. And I'm going to intersperse some comments. As you listen and contemplate, as we listen and contemplate, let it do two things. One, may it humble us because our need is great. And two, may it comfort us because Christ has given us everything we need. Listen that way. John Calvin, around 500 years ago, wrote these words. Because it is very well known by experience that the traces of sin always remain in the righteous, their justification must be very different from reformation into newness of life. What does that mean? It means that our declaration of being just in the sight of God has to be something other than the fact that our lives will be transformed. It is not the transformation of life that would justify us in God's sight. It has to be something else because sin still remains in God's people. He goes on. 
For God so begins this second point of sanctification, transformation of life in his elect and progresses in it gradually and sometimes slowly throughout life that they are always liable to the judgment of death before his tribunal. What's he saying? He's saying that sanctification and transformation of life sometimes occurs in God's providence slowly, gradually, and throughout a person's life to the extent that if at any moment we were called to stand in our own merit, we would be liable to the judgment of hell. He goes on. But he, God, does not justify in part, but liberally, freely, so that they may appear in heaven endowed with the purity of Christ. No portion of righteousness sets our consciences at peace until it has been determined that we are pleasing to God because we are entirely righteous before him. We will have no peace until we know that we have been declared perfectly just once and for all in the sight of God. From this it follows that the doctrine of justification is perverted and utterly overthrown when doubt is thrust into men's minds, when the assurance of salvation is shaken and the free and fearless calling upon God suffers hindrance. Further, when peace and tranquility with spiritual joy are not established. Close quote. When there is not peace and tranquility and joy and assurance, we're harmed. Our peace is robbed from us and it does no service to us in how we interact with other people. It only feeds our tendencies to be exacting. The Lord, in thinking about all of this, beloved, the Lord will sanctify his people. He will sanctify his people. Amen. He who called us is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen. And the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us, Romans 8, 4, only through the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Our righteousness resides completely in Christ's obedience, not our own. May the Lord give us grace to take that to heart. It will bear good fruit in our own lives in terms of peace, and it will bear good fruit in terms of how we relate to other people, other debtors to grace. What the Lord has done in us in giving us faith to trust Christ and his righteousness, may he do so all the more because salvation does indeed belong to him. So that's all point one. Second point, long, important, if you, if you hear anything I say today, hear this part. Point two, something greater than Jonah has come. Something greater than Jonah has come. Now, if you're familiar with the Gospels, you know who said that. Jesus of Nazareth said that about himself. He also said that the entire Bible is about him. He said to the Pharisees and the scribes that you search the scriptures thinking that in them you find eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. He said to them, if you believed Moses, you'd believe me because Moses wrote about me. 
And Moses, of course, wrote the book of the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We take our cue from Jesus when he talks to disciples on the road to Emmaus. We seek to believe all that the prophets have spoken. We seek to interpret in all the scriptures the things concerning him. We seek to understand every passage in light of him. And these chapters, these early chapters in Jonah are full of things concerning Jesus. So I'm going to give us two to kind of warm us up for the third one. Right? So we're just going to ramp up here. Get the blood flowing. In chapter 1, verses 5 to 15, we've got a violent storm going on, and you've got Jonah down on the inside of the boat asleep. And then immediately, in verse 15, upon him being thrown into the ocean, the wind and the waves just cease from raging. Well, something greater than Jonah came. God the Son who took on flesh came. Truly man, he too was asleep on a boat in a storm. He was awakened by his disciples who were terrified for their lives. Again, seasoned fishermen. And then Jesus gets up, stands up, rebukes the wind and the waves, rebukes them because he has the authority to do that, and they stop. In Jonah, we have a disobedient prophet, hard-hearted, unrepentant, despondent. Though God meant and accomplished good through all of this, Jonah meant evil. Just kill me, he says. Whereas Jesus is the greater prophet, sinless, the righteous one, always living in perfect accord with God's law, always meaning good, always displaying the glory of God in everything he did. So that's one. Next thing we can say. From Jonah 1.15 through 2.10, this whole business of Jonah being thrown into the ocean and then finally being delivered by God when he's spit out by the fish on dry land, Jonah was brought safely through water. If you were here for the Genesis series, you'll remember the flood. You'll remember how Peter picks up on the flood, that Noah and his family were brought safely through water. And he relates that to our baptism in the Lord Jesus Christ. Water is a significant thing in the scriptures and in God's economy of salvation. It was in the life of Jonah. Like Noah and the Israelites before him, so you had the flood, but you also had Israel brought safely through water as they march on the floor of the Red Sea. So just like those before him, Jonah would be brought safely through water, albeit through trial. Through water and the depths of the belly of a fish, God does a work in the life of his prophet. He brings him to repentance. He's saving his child. We too have been brought safely through water as we have been baptized into the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the second thing we can see. Here's the last. Something greater than Jonah has come. In chapter 1 and verse 17 through 2.10 in our text today. Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights and then was delivered. So from now on, We've joked about this. We've joked about Jonah. We've joked about flannel boards. We've joked about VBS. We've joked about those things. It's fine to have fun. And at the same time, from now on, when you think about Jonah and the fish, think about the fact that God never abandons us. 
And when you think about Jonah and the fish, I hope you think about everything that we're about to consider in the next 10 minutes. From now on, may it always be this way. The words of our Savior during his earthly ministry. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That's Matthew 12, 39 and 40. Now regarding the third day peace, you might already be thinking about 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says these words, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, you might have tried in your life to look up a chapter and verse in the Old Testament where there's a prophecy that says the Messiah will be raised on the third day. You won't find it. But what you will find is a number of types and shadows and pointers of huge things that God does on the third day in the Old Testament. That's why Paul can say he'll be raised on the third day. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Genesis 22. This is the account of Abraham and Isaac and Mount Moriah. He's going to take, Abraham is going to take his son up on the mountainside and sacrifice him. God, we know, is going to provide a substitute. But listen to these words from Genesis 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Hebrews 11, we read, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. From which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. On the third day, Abraham took Isaac up the mountain. On the third day, God provided a substitute. The writer of the Hebrews says, on the third day, Abraham, figuratively speaking, received his son back from the dead. There's one. Exodus 19. This is right before God is going to give the law on Mount Sinai. Big moment in redemptive history. The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. The Lord will come down in the sight of all the people on the third day. Big deal. Hosea 6, chapter 1, or verse 1 and 2, excuse me. Hosea 6, 1 and 2. This is the collective cry of Israel from the words of the prophet. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. There's another. And we have our text today in Jonah 1, 17. 
So all of that third day stuff in the Old Testament, including Jonah being in the belly of the great fish for three days, happened for what reason? One reason only. The Messiah would come and he would lie on the earth for three days and he would rise again. Now, as great as that is, let's think about Jesus being in the heart of the earth for three days. It's what he said, Matthew 12. Just like Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. You cannot help but think about the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only beloved Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried, and he descended into hell. We confess this. Jesus would descend to Sheol. You see this language in Jonah. He would descend to the realm of the dead. He would rise from the dead, literally from the dead ones, is how the New Testament writes it. When you hear the word Sheol, understand the spiritual realm of the dead, akin to the word hell or Hades in the New Testament. And just a brief side note, the place of eternal torment, the final state, final judgment, is referred to differently. Gehenna, the lake of fire, the outer darkness, that's the language. Suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried. He descended into hell. To do what? Psalm 16.10 reads this, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, says David. Meaning, you will not allow it to stay there. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. Peter picks this up in the Pentecost sermon in Acts 2, where Peter says this, having quoted Psalm 16.10, he says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is a fulfillment of Psalm 16.10. In Romans 10, verses 6 and 7, we read these words. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend to heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Implication, Christ already came from heaven. He did his work. Christ already descended into the abyss and has been raised. Ephesians 4, 7 to 10. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. This is the establishment of the church, right? Therefore it says, Paul quotes Psalm 68, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who has also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Psalm 68 is about God's triumphant march from Mount Sinai in the wilderness to Mount Zion in Jerusalem and him being enthroned there. 
And Paul understands the point of that text is to point to the fact that Christ ascended from the dead victorious and triumphant. To which we would say, man, if more people read the scriptures like Paul. Jesus descended to the lower regions of the earth. He was in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Sheol, Hades. And he has ascended on high, leading a host of captives. And he gave gifts to men to establish the church. Colossians 2.15 speaks of how Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. What rulers and authorities are we talking about? We ain't talking about human ones. We're talking about the principalities and the powers of darkness and hell. He triumphed over them and put them to open shame. So you may be sitting there and thinking, all right, brother, he descended into hell. He descended into hell to do what? He did not descend into hell to suffer more. Hear that. He did not descend to suffer more. He'd done the work. He'd atoned for sin. He descended into hell to conquer. To conquer death, to conquer hell, to conquer Satan. In Mark 3.27, Jesus uses the language about the strong man being bound and how all of his goods will be plundered. We have the language of the scriptures elsewhere about how Satan will be bound. So in my study of the scripture, Jesus was in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. He descended into hell to bind the strong man and plunder his goods. He went to crush the serpent's head. He went to rescue his people and set them free eternally. And then he ascended in victory, having conquered. In his life, perfect. He kept his father's every word. The law he followed perfectly. So all God's pleasure he secured. All this and more he earned for me. He did that in his life. In his death, he put an end to all our sin. Having satisfied the justice and the wrath of a righteous God once and for all. Final forgiveness now is ours. He had accomplished everything for us in our place that God would ever require. And then he descended to conquer hell, to bind the strong man, the ancient serpent who is the devil, and to rescue his people. And so, beloved, his people are free. Free. So when you read Jonah, and you read of the great fish, think of the one who is greater than Jonah who came, who spent three days and three nights in the heart of the earth and rose victorious. Think of the one who said, whom the Son sets free will be free indeed. 